welcome to the weekly review. This is Roman. Today, it's Friday, December 9th, 2016. The year from hell, some might say. Every every week when I do the show, I say, oh, what a, what a terrible week it was. As we go over the news and current events and things that have happened both locally and abroad. And I suppose with a lot of news organizations, that's kind of what happens. I think depending on the organization and depending on one's outlook. And this week has been no different and it's definitely taken a toll. And of course, to an extent, as I feel a lot of the time with this show, first of all, the, tr- the trigger warning, we'll be talking about a lot of really just hard, uh, frustrating, depressing, enraging things that have happened in human behavior and human responses to behavior and tragedies. And um, also, there's also just that idea of what's, what's an appropriate response and how does one grieve? And similar to protests, sometimes people want to criticize the way people grieve or what people do to grieve or how people want to show their their emotions. And yeah, with, with protesting too, it's so people don't want people to protest a certain way. Or they say, why, why do you have to do it this way? Why don't you do it a different way? Instead of allowing room for the people just to be and allowing that space and perhaps a conversation to happen so healing can begin. And we live in an age with the, the internet, which I feel humans have not quite caught up to yet, myself included, with you know technology and these advances in technology and how we use it. And unfortunately, we don't necessarily always use it to connect with one another. We use it to hurt each other a lot. And we can use it to share information and also use it to share misinformation. And it's I feel there's there's definitely folks who are trying really hard to hold on to the, the good things about it, especially with social media, how to uh, share vulnerability, how to share truth, how to connect in a way that before, you know, this platform, there it wasn't available. How can I express something to people I don't see on a regular basis, people who might live elsewhere? How can I do this? All the while recognizing that we're being surveyed, all the while recognizing that things could be misconstrued if other folks look at it and don't quite understand the context. Also recognizing that a lot of the times when people post things or share things, it's a really a way of, for, I can only speak for myself, but it's a way of reaching out and wanting to not feel alone and to recognize a lot of the time that other people are feeling something similar to me, that a lot of these things are really universal. And a lot of the time, for me anyway, it's a way of just to, to reach out and to say, hey, this has happened to me. I'm pretty sure it's happened to other people as well. And we need to protect each other and look out for each other. And it's really difficult because I, I often joke slash I'm serious that we should change the name of the nation to the United States of victim blaming, because I feel like that's a really common theme. I don't feel like the states are united in a lot of ways, but there is this constant victim blaming. When people are attacked by law enforcement, people say, oh, that, that person, some people say, oh, that person deserved it instead of uh, maybe criticizing law enforcement. If someone is, yeah, attacked by anyone, it's, it's questioned, their motives are questioned. Oh, I don't believe you. I want evidence is sometimes a response people get. People lose their lives. People get ill. People don't have housing. People don't have their basic needs met. And instead of looking at the systemic problems that created it in the first place, uh, the people who suffer because of it are then faulted. And it's a way of not looking at the issues at hand. It's a way of not criticizing the system. It's a way of also not holding those who are in power accountable because that's what it is. And I recognize 
that it's very helpful. It's like when something bad happens, there's this idea when there's pain, people want to blame someone or something. I get that to try to dispel the pain. I get that. And sometimes, yeah, complaining or doing that maybe displaces it or misplaces that energy in a way that might not be productive. And at the same time, I think it's really useful and important that we do call out oppressive forces that have enabled the system to go on as it has to create these situations that are in place. It's the systems that are in place and the people then within these systems, working within the systems, so, so supposedly doing their jobs that allow these things to happen. And I think it's very fair to then go on record and to say, hey, listen, these are people in positions of power. These are paid officials. A lot of times these paid officials who are then kind of fan terrible to fucking say fanning the flames they are they're making things worse and now we're seeing <sighs> artist residences warehouses collectives being evicted around the country there's one in denver uh, i heard about one in baltimore the, uh, plenty here in the bay area uh officials are using this as a way the the fire as a way, um, under the guise of saying that they need to keep people safe, they're using it to evict people. They're not offering alternatives. They're not saying, wait, this place might be unsafe. Let me go in and fix it. Or, hey, if this place is they deem unsuitable, then you know they're not going and saying, okay, this doesn't feel safe. How about we provide an alternative? But they're not. They're sending evictions. And there's an article I'll, I'll get to. And one of the key points, I mean, there's makes a lot of great key points in it, and is that the mayor of Oakland uh, in the housing cabinet, there's someone who has had over, uh, been responsible for over 4,000 evictions in Oakland, over 4,000 in less than a decade. So when you say you're an official and you care about people's safety and you have connections to people who profit off of evictions, it's really hard for people to take you at your word. And I consider this to be very similar to the idea with law enforcement, with uh, police, the idea that they're serving and protecting. Who are they serving and who are they protecting? Because I know from my fucking circle, from a lot of people and from my own personal experience, uh, the police officers have ended up hurting people more than they've ended up helping people. So, and yes, people hurt each other. And when people are in positions of power and they can do it and then get away with it and not be held accountable, that's a huge issue. That's a huge problem and that needs to be addressed. And I consider the the officials here in, in the officials in Oakland who are saying they want to help people and they want to be, you know, be safe and provide housing uh, by evicting someone and not offering alternatives or not saying that you're going to help fix the situation. They are part of the problem. They are serving and protecting the wealthy classes. They are. It's a land grab. It's absolutely a land grab. Whew. So that's a, you know, they say the personal is political and the political is personal, and that could be a theme of the show every, every week. Coming up on three years of doing this show. My name's Roman, by the way, if I didn't say that already. And, you know, with doing the show, it's, I find there's, not even just doing the show, but just being aware in the world and talking to a lot of people and reading opinions from people who experience it, people who are the most marginalized, people who are going through it firsthand and hearing their opinions of it and their experiences of it instead of reading what the mainstream media has to say. Oh, and I'll get into, oh, I'll get into that. There was, so there were two vigils on Monday evening. There was one at Harvey Milk Plaza uh, in San Francisco and folks donated food and flowers and there are some speakers there and they were really talking, addressing about how, you know, with trans folks, uh, the lack of housing and, and it was good to see people come out and then, as there are sometimes with, I have to fucking mention it because if I don't mention it, then it's like, I, I need to 
even the even unfortunate things need to be fucking mentioned like with some other vigils and protests you know someone will walk by and maybe say make maybe make a snide remark or maybe they don't quite get it or maybe they're angry and heard about the same thing and just don't know how to express it so then they like insult the people that are there and i had to get it in the guy's face he was a taller guy anyway I'm, I'm not usually a physical i don't like getting into physical confrontations i don't like even non physical confrontations i'm I, i'd say i veer more towards the passive aggressive side of things which i recognize is also not healthy but i also am very much like i don't want to I would much rather not deal with it, but then uh, if someone's going to say something at an event like that, I'm going to fucking get in someone's face, and I did. Anyway, <sighs> totally d- derailed where I was going. But anyway, this is just also like, people aren't even allowed to grieve without being hassled, and that's the thing, like whether it be online or in person. So at the, and then there's a vigil um, at like, around Lake Merritt later that evening, and I think we was able to get a ride there, and I saw some folks I knew, some folks I didn't know. And uh, a lot of, throughout the days, um, I keep on hearing from friends, um, some I'm closer to than others, um, people who have lost people. There are 36 people have died uh, in, the, in the fire, and many friends from different parts of my life knew people who were there. And I have friends who were on their way there, and people who were planning on going and didn't go, or who had been at that space at a different point in time. And it's going beyond that personal level. We all should be fucking mourning all the time, regardless of whether or not we have certain connections to people. So I go there and I see some people, you know, some friends, you know, it's just, I see people and it's just, and also a lot of people I had, there's like thousands, there's a lot of people there. And something that someone had warned about was like, watch out, the media is there because this has been, you know, it's a local thing here. And then we also see how the media kind of will swoop in on a tragedy and try to spin it their own way and sell whatever story they want to have and make it do whatever the fucking mainstream media. Because I recognize this is the media too. And I hope that I am, my goal is to come across as the anti-media. I have a lack of, I mean, there's no advertising, there's no funding. It's like the opposite, maybe to a fault. Uh, No censorship here. Uh, my agenda is to to tell the truth as I see it and to um, provide a voice for folks who might not have a platform otherwise and um, also just totally go against the state. And I think the state has a lot of connections to mainstream media. So trying to do all I can to counter that. And I recognize it's doesn't necessarily come across maybe, but that's part of one way I look at it. And I don't know what that necessarily looks like. It changes from week to week and from my moods. Uh, I also just want to recognize that there are so many messages we get out there that are lying to us and people in positions of power that want to maintain that fear. And not that what I talk about isn't scary, but I also recognize that we need to trust one another more. And maybe I'm saying that for myself and I recognize that, that I don't always trust people for sure. I've been hurt a lot. So that's a whole other story that I'll save for therapy, not on the radio show anyway. Oh yeah. So the media, so like watch out for the media. And I felt like as someone who, I had connections to the space, but it was not as uh, acute as some other folks there. Um, I would like, I didn't want to necessarily participate in that because I feel like it's really predatory. And then at the same time, I also want to speak as a trans person who recognizes like, if I can speak to the truth about how these spaces are really important and how we need more safe spaces, I feel like that's a really valid point to make. Um, so this person, like a high school student came up to me and she was really nice. And like, I felt totally, you know, totally sincere and like really just inquisitive. And so I mentioned, oh yeah, I'm trans. And there's, there are at least three trans artists that we know of who were that, you know, like I was there because she asked me why I was there. I was like, oh, it affects the community as a trans person. I want to say that we need more safe spaces. And I, you know, I made that very clear. And so I felt like good about that. That was something like I stood behind and I felt it was coming from a really authentic, sincere place of someone who 
I guess was young enough that they haven't been brainwashed yet or didn't have a, an agenda that was necessarily trying to spin it in a certain way. Unlike later in the evening and this guy came up to me from fucking Billboard magazine and I kind of regret talking to him and then also at the time it was like I just was like I I don't know I just did it and that's the thing where I can't I don't know I could have so I did mention that like the same thing like I added myself as trans and wanted to, to make it clear that trans folks artists marginalized communities need more safe spaces and I went in and I just totally talked shit about capitalism for a little bit so I don't know whether or not he'll quote me I give him my name which I also feel like ugh about but whatever uh, it was very clear also just to like not name any specific spaces because we don't want those places being attacked or targeted. Um, so yeah, it made it very clear that like capitalism is the devil and ugh. I've been talking about devil and hell a lot on the show, which I don't usually do. I don't know what that's about. We'll see. Maybe uh, it's just this idea of like the evils of it or just this, the systems that are in place that cause or cause or lead people to go astray. We could say, and I also mentioned, like, yeah, there's some of the artists who are trans, and I'm a trans person, so I really want to come out and support the community. And then he asked me which artists were trans, and I was like, no, no, no. Oh, no, you don't get to fucking ask me that. Don't, no, I'm not going to out people. Like, I don't, fuck that. And it was this very, like, oh, and there's that part of me that's like, I totally believe in visibility, and at the same time, I'm not going to fucking out anyone who, like, I'm not going to do that. Like, no. And it's this weird thing that, I mean, I feel certainly as a trans person, like I want to be out and I'm out to most people and I, I'm okay with being out at a lot of the time. And then sometimes it's not on the forefront of my mind or I don't want it to be like the first thing someone knows about me necessarily. Um, so it's just, it's complicated. Um, but that's only for myself. But when it comes to other people, I want to, ideally, I want to protect them and not out anyone, especially to a fucking, you know, like magazine, you know? And it was just like, and also the sense that, the person who was interviewing me was like a cis guy, you know, it's like, ugh, and not to talk shit about cis guys, but I mean, let's do it. Let's start honestly. Cause when you look at the problems in the world, anyway, point being, it was just like the fucking media was there. And how, how is that? Like when you're at a place to grieve and then someone's kind of coming in and that, and that person I spoke to, unlike the high school student felt definitely more predatory. And like, he wasn't, I don't think, I wouldn't necessarily describe, I wouldn't say it was a sleazy kind of feeling, and I get that he's doing his job, but, you know, some people are doing their jobs, and it just felt a little bit off to me. And I kind of, at the time, afterwards, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said anything at all, but if I can at least, you know, denounce capitalism in some mainstream outlet, then maybe it was worth it. <sighs> so we opened up the show with uh, some music that we'll be playing throughout the program um, with a band, and uh, one of the members, uh, Kasia Skew, who is a friend of a friend uh, passed away and this was her band and they are called Them Are Us Too and that song was called Us Now and it's really beautiful music and I also like am kicking myself for someone as being someone who you know I want to support community and then also recognizing there are these artists out here these local artists that I was either unaware of or didn't go out and support actively and that's something also too to remember is that we have to fucking support our artists and why are people relegated to spaces like this it's like it, we, artists are not supported in this country at all and a lot of people came to the bay area so they could be artists and as a lot of us know it's really hard to make like i mean i've been so even when i have the time like i have i haven't been creating as much as i would like to because there's like a number of reasons there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons and maybe they're excuses and maybe a little bit of both and at the same time, it's it's hard if if people don't have uh, outlet, people don't have the support, whether it be financial or just even in person, the support. Uh, it's really hard to go out and to create. It really is, and I want to 
just recognize that these are folks who are out there doing it and how fucking beautiful that was. And like folks who were like, yeah, like in their, in their twenties and they're like young. And I'm like, ah, oh. and it's just, it's a fucking loss. It's a huge loss. It's a huge loss. So that's, that's where, that's where I'm at. And I can only speak for myself and I, I want to offer condolences to everyone who's been affected. And I mean, this has touched so many people and also just the, the ripple effect of how folks who have lost housing and people who will lose housing and the, and artists who are being targeted now. And there is a stupid argument saying that, that I think it's a stupid argument saying that this has nothing to do with housing and it absolutely fucking does have to do with housing. It has to do with safe spaces and who owns these spaces. And yeah, of course, ideally every space should be safe. Um, but if people aren't going to fucking offer safe spaces, then this is what people are left with. So it just makes me feel really, uh, frustrated, very frustrated and very angry and very hurt. And, um, just fucking, it's just a loss. So I'm going to play some more of their music and then, uh, we'll get into some more stories. Uh, also there was a really great write-up in Pitchfork that I wanted to share. And that kind of deals a lot with what I've been speaking about the, uh, just an overall view of what's happened in Oakland with the political climate and the housing climate and how that affects artists and marginalized folks. There's also the, the trans, uh, what's it, what's it called? It's like the trans study. That's not it. It's a survey. This is me not doing my homework. It's the official, excuse me, 2015 United States of Victim Blaming Transgender Survey Report that came out. Uh, it was released yesterday. So I was going to go over a little bit of that as well, the executive summary at least. I've read a lot of the report. And a lot of it, like many surveys that we find, it's like, oh, we already knew this. It's like, oh, people are being like pushed around, discriminated against in every fucking aspect of their lives, whether it be housing, jobs, school, home, relationships, every fucking where everywhere like the suicide rate like i mean it's just like in, in in medical situations in bathrooms everywhere and if you're a trans person you fucking know this already it's like oh, it's just a fact of life we just kind of go through it and i was thinking about my own i'll just might as well rant about it now uh my own experience and how i i found this journal that i was keeping my first year of college and i was 17 and i wrote this entry 17 or 18 and I wrote this entry that was like, I had to get drunk first to write it. And then uh, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm totally like, I'm, I'm, I'm male. I'm, I'm masculine. I got, you know, this is how I identify. And I didn't, I didn't have the tools to deal with it. I didn't know who to talk to about it. it. I didn't have the language. I didn't know it was even a possibility. I didn't even know I could exist. And this was back, this is 10 years ago or 10 years before I decided to move forward with it. So this is in 1998. And, I think about like, I knew it at the time and yes, granted people have been transitioning over time. Like it's been there forever, but it's not necessarily always been talked about. People haven't always been out. There've been less resources, et cetera. And I was thinking and reading this survey, they talk about how kids have been bullied at school, you know, going from like kindergarten onwards. And I think about, wow. Like, I mean, no wonder not only did I not have the language for it, but it, it might not have even been safe. And perhaps in like, I'm grateful and very privileged that I was able to go to like a, a college where I feel like they would have overall been more accepting than others. Absolutely. And at the same time, um, th- even then it was clearly not an option for me to even start talking about it with people or to tell people or to even begin to try to comprehend it. Cause I didn't think it was even a possibility. And 
I think a huge thing would be like also safety. And I think about these kids, these young kids, and I'll go into the statistics, but like even kids in fucking elementary school are bullied. Like, I mean, I came out as gay in high school and I started a gay straight alliance and you know, like that felt scary at the time. That was like in the late nineties. And even then that felt a little bit precarious. And even in the Bay area, there was a little bit, there was like slight pushback, but overall, like compared to, I'm sure what many folks have experienced, not at all. Um, as, uh, not as much of a pushback as there would be in other situations in other places. Absolutely. And I also wonder as a, someone who is viewed as female, like what as an out quote unquote, I never, I never liked the L word that even the show, uh, the show had its moments, but anyway, even how to identify myself, I was always like, I'm like, Oh, I'm gay. I'm, I'm, you know, or bi or whatever. But, and I also wonder would that, was that an advantage to being viewed as like a, a masculine? Ugh, I mean, I can't even the words to describe myself. Um, and I imagine what it would be like if I was growing up as a cis male. Like I can't even, I also assume I would be trans regardless of whatever gender I was signed at birth. That's pretty much, I think I'm pretty solid in that belief for sure. Cause I feel very much non-binary, very, um, not one or the other. Cause I don't believe in that. And that just doesn't sit well with me. But I also wonder what it would be like to grow up and to have been more, I mean, I feel like I guess I was open as I could be about it. And even as a, gay person like feeling pushback or feeling afraid or feeling threatened and being out and what would it be like to be trans like if I if I knew it was possible if I would have moved forward with that and then seeing that even now which is so let's say I was in high school in the in the mid to late 90s so now it's like 15 20 years later 20 years later I shouldn't kid myself been 20 years since I've been in high school wow um uh, kids are still being bullied. So it's like, and yes, progress has been made and I appreciate that for sure. And I recognize by being visible, that's also how progress can be made. You know, you provide an example, you, you talk to people, you have conversations, you ask people who are supposedly cis allies to have conversations with their families about transphobia and their friends. You know, you, you ask them to, Hey, listen, can you fucking argue on my behalf? Because it's really exhausting. Where I was talking to when Laurent Barton was here, um, last, was it, uh, two weeks ago or last week, two weeks ago, last week, I've lost track of time. When Lauren Barton was here most recently, we were talking about how exhausting it is to have to explain one's oppression. And that's absolutely true. How much time is spent trying to just argue for one's rights and to defend one's rights and say, Hey, this hurt me. And then have to explain how it hurt you. It's really hard. It's hard when society in general just doesn't have room for it or wants to keep on going with the status quo that even if that means pushing you down and pushing you around. And it's really hard not to adopt those behaviors if you're part of that. If you're brought up in that society and or if you're brought up by folks who believe in that, it's really hard not to adopt those qualities. <sighs> so looking at this study, which I'll get into, it, it just seems so... <sighs> I wonder like what it takes to, to come out. And I have so much respect and love, first of all, for the folks who are no longer here, who like made it possible for us to be here, for me, possible for me to fucking be here, to even talk about it out loud, to even follow myself and my voice and to trust myself enough so I could even open up about it in the first place. Who gave their lives for that. Very grateful. And I'm grateful for the youth who are out there, who are doing it, who are facing hurdles that I didn't have to face because I couldn't quite articulate who I was at that age. I didn't know if it was a possibility or not. And there are youth out there who are doing it now. And 
I am very grateful for them because it gives folks like me, like folks who are now in adulthood, uh, some sense of hope and maybe some sense of, oh, well, it was good that I came out and it was good that I'm here, that I did this and that I'm still here and can provide, I don't know what kind of guidance because I recognize things are constantly changing and everyone's experiences are different, but it, it does give hope to see young folks feel like they are able to to come out and to be themselves and to also just challenge the whole idea of the gender binary. That's really reassuring. So that's kind of where I'm at this week. Dealing with a lot. Everyone's dealing with a lot. So I don't, I don't by any means say, I mean, it's just, and if everyone had the opportunity and the option to, to speak about it, I'm, I'm sure there would be a lot of folks speaking and how great that would be. I was thinking the other day how uh, I occasionally go to open mics and how great it would be if every Monday through Friday that from nine to five, there were open mics instead of folks going to certain office jobs that weren't necessarily helpful. If there was a place for folks to go to create and to share and to listen to one another and to connect and how nice that would be if every day there was an option. And I suppose at evenings and evenings and in certain places, there are more options to share than others. Uh, not, not online, but in person. And how nice that would be if everyone, if that was just a 24 seven type thing where you feel you want to be heard, you want to speak to someone and be heard and you can just show up somewhere and be heard and share what's happening with you and how less alone people would feel. I think that would be really beneficial and helpful to the world. And I think that's what a lot of these shows were about too, about people who might not have felt safe in some places, being able to go out and share their art with others and to be seen and to feel safe and if you've never been mistreated based on the body you're born into, um, it might not come across as something that's urgent, but it really is. And that's something I find it's difficult to express. And I don't necessarily like check. I don't want to like analyze, oh, who's resonating with the posts that I'm writing? Um, I, oh, I do see patterns though. And it's it's interesting to see, you know, who, and it's like the in terms of identities and like, some folks have had similar experiences and a lot of the times it's like we're on this like kind of marginalized uh, front and it's really hard to explain to people who haven't been through that. And I'm also just thinking about grief lately and still dealing, I've had, lost a number of friends to suicide and have been thinking about that. And it's a kind of different, every kind of grief is different and everyone, you know, it's, it's, it's personal for everyone. And for myself, a lot of it's been really intense and just this whole idea, especially with trans folks who have taken their lives and kind of resonating with it and like understanding it in a very real way and what that feels like and trying to convey that to people. And at sometimes it feels like paralyzing in a way where it's like, I can't quite find the words or I lash out. And like now I recognize that now I've been dealing with it more uh, seriously, I should say, or maybe in a more, <sighs> maybe in a more constructed, constructive way. It's like, what, what do you do with all these feelings, especially with folks that you didn't really have friends in common with or friends where you had, a, you know, very, specific shared experience and then that's kind of gone and I can only speak for myself as a trans person but our identities like my identity it's like very hard to convey to folks who haven't quite 
lived it. And we can all relate, certainly. We can all relate to that we're treated differently based on the bodies we're born into. Absolutely. And as there's that idea that the world doesn't, in some ways, I think things are changing, but in some ways, the world doesn't really believe trans people exist. So people deny our existence. It's not just people are violently attacked and in some cases fucking murdered or kicked out or denied service, like medical treatment or kicked out of schools, kicked out of the fucking bathroom. It's that people don't even believe us when we say we exist. And that is like the lowest thing in the world. When people would rather just not talk about it or say someone died instead of, you know, saying, oh, this person transitioned. That feels really hurtful. And that's happened. And how, I guess there needs to be like a way just to, to talk about it. And I'm still dealing with a lot of transphobia. And it's something that I'm in a place where I have this safety of walking around and people not knowing about it. And at the same time, wanting to be very visible. And how, you know, how do I do that while still being myself? It's, it's complicated. It's, it's very complicated. So I, I have more, I guess, questions than answers and also just feeling a lot of hurt. And I think that's where a lot of my energy comes from, just feeling a lot of hurt. And in some cases people didn't know better and I'm in no way saying that I'm by any means a perfect person. I feel like I should say that on every show because I do have a lot of anger and a lot of hurt and a lot of frustration towards a lot of people, most of whom are elected officials and or law enforcement, people in positions of power, I should say. I mean, that's where it kind of comes from. If we were able to honestly be more free to live without fear of retaliation from the state, if we had our basic needs met and could support ourselves like by just being, uh, if we walked the earth freely, if we had access to clean, everyone, everyone had access to clean drinking water, uh, didn't risk imprisonment just for being or doing a certain substance. If we were able to walk down the street without feeling threatened or attacked, uh, it, just imagine what kind of world that would be. And we don't live in that world right now, and that's really hard, and that's hard to convey to people. And so what do you do if you live in a world where there get all these messages, whether from the media, you know, from TVs, film, news, from other people, from officers, from teachers, from bosses, from like coworkers, sometimes from family, sometimes from like intimate partners that somehow you're less than or based on your identity. Like how, how does one reconcile that? How does one stay alive in this world? And one of the statistics, maybe I just won't even, I'll talk for the entire time. Maybe I won't even make it to the news stories. One of the, the, one of the statistics was talking about like, I think this year alone, it was that trans folks were nine times more likely to attempt suicide than cis folks. And those are just the people who were surveyed, you know, it doesn't, and those are just the ones who attempt it. It's not the folks who have already gone. So, I mean, that's fucking outrageous. So things really do need to change. And I, it's so frustrating. And I get that this is it's true with many marginalized communities where it's like, we're the ones who have to kind of speak up. We have to fight for ourselves and other people aren't doing it for us. And that's really hard. 
And I also will recognize I do come from a very privileged place. Hell, I can sit here right now at the radio station and just speak that. And I can share that. And I can walk out the door and feel relatively safe. And not everyone has that privilege. So if someone in my body who, you know, feels that way, like I'm just imagining how much of the fucking world feels unsafe so much of the time. And especially in, I can't speak for other, like in American culture, it's what I grew up in. There's this idea that we're not supposed to talk about our feelings or our emotions or that there's something wrong if we're sad or angry or upset. We're supposed to get over it. We're supposed to put on a smile. And like, honestly, like I don't fucking feel that. I've pretty much always worn my heart on my sleeve and it, it makes people uncomfortable. I get that, that I can't deny how I'm feeling. I might not explain it, but if I'm upset, it's really hard for me to hold that inside. I can't, I have a lot of trouble doing that. And I think a lot of us have been taught that we're supposed to do that. And I feel like that's really unhealthy. And I'm wondering how we can unlearn that. It's really hard. <sighs> so, I'm encouraging folks to call in if you would like to share anything. I realize I just kind of went off and maybe I just needed to and allowing myself the space to do that. Um, because there's a lot that I do hold in and I try to get out as much as possible. And even in certain places where one might feel like they're able to get things out, it's not always safe to do so. So I'd like to play another song by Them Are Us Too. And this one is called Eudaimonia.
and welcome back to the weekly review. That was them or us two with eudaimonia. That's my general feeling for the day. Also wanted to get to some stories about how fucking in Ohio and Texas, they've passed some very uh, reprehensible or they're looking to pass some very reprehensible pro-life measures uh, that pretty much making it illegal to be a woman. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Very restrictive, uh, quote unquote. I won't even. I won't even use the, the terminology that some of these fuckers use. Uh, so there's ways you can call up fucking John Kasich. Excuse me. I don't even. I mean, uncensored. It doesn't matter if I swear, but it's one should be swearing about these kind of things when these fucking men are just being dicks. Ugh. They're, they have a six week abortion ban, which is just. There should be no. I mean, it's it's like what. So gross. So folks are calling on John Kasich to, to veto it, and thankfully he's getting a lot of pressure from people. So uh, Ultraviolet, uh, which is an organization, has a petition out. You can also call the governor directly. I uh, recommend you do that. Um, oh, oh, oh. So, you know, it feels like it's one thing after the other, and that's how it's always been. Been doing the show now for three years, and it's kind of like, who's it's like just people in positions of power making it shitty for the rest of us that's really what it comes down to but if you look at it though we're in the majority though the people who are being negatively affected are in the majority and it's like the very small percentage of the people who are like making these laws in the first place so what can we do with our with our power in numbers to overcome that to change that so yeah if you go to ultraviolet dot uh, org we are ultraviolet.org. You can uh, sign a petition. There also is a number to call this. I have, I have so many not nice things to call him, the governor. He's just, and like the folk, I mean, it's like not even just the governor, but the folks who like lo- make these laws in the first place. The idea of protecting people. Again, it's, oh, yeah, we got to keep people safe by oppressing them. We got to keep people safe by making laws about their bodies. Fuck them. Ah! How can people not be angry? How can you not be angry? And like, this is the world we're living in. How can you not be angry? How? And maybe that's what it's going to come down to is people being angry. And we see it coming from like the right. Certainly they've always been fucking angry because they're, (sighs) but I feel like there's a kind of like this docile kind of on the left. If we're going to, and I get, I get that, you know, there's an idea that, oh, the left and the right are on this, our wings of the same bird. I get that. I think, especially when talking about the Democrat and Republican party where it's like, some there's a lot of folks who believe that the Democrats are not very progressive. I am one of those people. One of the things in the statistics in this trans survey was talking about political affiliations. They left out the green party for some reason. I can't catch a break. Uh, they left out the third parties and this they did for trans folks. Like what political party do you affiliate with? And 50% were Democrats. 48% were like independent or like, you know, no party and 2% were Republicans. Uh, yeah, the, I wish they had included green because I think we'd probably have a healthy chunk of us are green party or, you know, but I was like, oh, we got to get those Democrats more to the left and those Republican trans vote. I mean, again, it's like, I don't want to, I'm, maybe I know someone who's a Republican trans person. Maybe I do. Uh, but I also, I feel like we need to have healthy critiques of the Democrat part, Democratic party too, because I don't, I don't believe there are saviors by any means. That's my point. Oh, yeah. So people in positions of power just being dicks. That's theme of the show, theme of life. I think the sooner we can teach children that to like not necessarily have to respect authority, but to challenge it and question it, the better off we'll be as, as a society. That would be helpful. All right. Easier said than done, though. I get that. I mean, how do you... It's like, it's a, yeah, it's easier said than done. It's like, how do you fucking like... Uh, 
question people who have like the ability to harm you or your family or threaten you like how it's yeah definitely easier said than done and like look at me like what am i doing i'm talking on the radio but i'm not i'm not gonna talk down about myself today well uh, i'll do my best not to but one can see that um it might not be helpful all right so we're gonna read some news stories we have a special guest coming in at 1 p.m I encourage folks to call in. You can still call in whenever. That's always a thing with the show. You can always call in whenever. 415-550-0511. Call in. Tell us what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Predictions for the future. Thoughts about the past. The present. What's going on. Strategies. Eh, whatever you want to share. We're totally welcome to that here. The more the merrier. So I'm going to read the story that I quoted uh, earlier, or at least spoke about earlier from Pitchfork. Um, after the ghost ship fire, Oakland DIY grapples with a broken system. And I found this article. There's like a lot of articles that have been out there, and this one I thought to be particularly helpful. Uh, um, this is by uh, Sam Lefebvre. Aerial photos of the Oakland warehouse venue where dozens perished in a fire over the weekend resemble a rib cage parted and relieved of its heart. On Friday evening, however, the second story of a building known as Ghost Ship pulsed with life. Johnny Egas, a DJ known as Nacht, Nacht, uh, spun records to a swelling crowd of at least 60 who anticipated a late night of industrial techno and minimal electronic music by Obsidian Blade and Golden Donna. Performer Russell Butler was outside greeting arrivals when he turned around to see friends emerging from black plumes of smoke that had suddenly saturated the labyrinth labyrinthine structure i thought of johnny in the dj booth at the far end of the building butler said he, uh they said you guys are still accounted for um he's been added to the list since then uh and when people stopped coming out the door it was just wrong local musician mara Berenbaum, who lives nearby heard about the fire within minutes and rushed to the fruitvale district warehouse shortly after 11 p.m until nearly dawn, she consoled friends across the street as firefighters struggled to quell the blaze. Baron Baum recalled envisioning ladders extended and friends clambering out the windows, but it didn't happen. Ever since, officials have be been clearing debris with buckets and sifting through the remains of at least 36 people, a number that's expected to increase. They've requested DNA samples of those suspected missing for identification purposes. Local politicians clamber for scapegoats, leaseholder, inspector, or gig organizers, one city council person bizarrely offered anarchist rejection of regulation. Fucker. Droves of distraught family and friends, meanwhile, gathered to mourn in Oakland bars, homes, and warehouse residences reminiscent of Ghost Ship. Their talk centers on fallen community pillars, feckless and tone-deaf officials, survival, and the undertow of displacement. It feels like the end of individ individualism around here, Baronbaum said. There's just this needed commitment to solidarity. Among the attendees and performers unaccounted for or confirmed dead, according to the Trans Assistance Project, are three transgender women, Feral Pines, M. Bolka, and Cash Askew, one half of downcast synth-pop duo Them Are Us Too. Known casualties include film director Alex Gasson, as well as Ara Joe, who ran art spaces and zine fest with Infectious Aplume. One of Friday's scheduled performers, Chelsea Faith, an electronic musician who records as Cherish Hill for 100% Silk is unaccounted for. This, writer's, this writer remembers well the inspired ideas of Joey Cassio, who also remains missing, about the alchemy of hardware and the dance floor's insur insurrectionary potential. 
The breadth and scope of the missing persons whose varied identities and backgrounds reveal an event intent on inclusivity incited a staggering show of tribute. The owner of local bar, Eli's Mile High Club, donated tips to those who'd lost housemates. It was rent time, after all. The Warriors pledged tens of thousands to victims and their families. Local house shows were canceled, supplanted with by open invitations to somber backyard bonfires. Butler recast a planned nightclub performance Saturday night as a reverie. We can't call it a memorial, he said that afternoon. We want to, ho- we want to hold space and to hold on for our friends, especially with the music we love. Drained late last century by declining tax revenue and selective civic neglect, Oakland boasts a constellation of seemingly derelict warehouses, storefronts, and churches. Within many of their shabby exteriors, however, are places of creative invention and possibility. These homes and venues, known by cryptic names rarely recorded in the press, cradle scenes that slip between categories. There, where as yet unnamed subcultures gestate, for non-conforming bodies harassed and abused at other clubs, their sanctuaries. In some ways, Ghost Ship was typical of these unsanctioned live-work venues, a post-industrial shell repurposed by artists with a, with the tacit approval of a property owner likely anticipating lucrative redevelopment. In other ways, it was anomalous. Leaseholder Derek Almina, a collector of world religion trinkets who has compared himself to fascists and who was not at the event, is emerging as more underground profiteer than participant. In a Facebook post after the fire, he lamented not the death toll but the loss of quote-unquote everything I worked so hard for. Locals, including Nihar Bhatt, who co-runs techno and minimal synth series Surface Tension, and Michael Buchanan, who coordinates discrete electronic music events through Katabotic, told me that they'd already resolved not to book at Ghost Ship on account of its structural integrity. Another booker, who asked not to be identified, claimed that Almina charged him far more than comparable underground spaces, $1,000 a night. After one gig last year, according to court documents, Amina allegedly threatened to go get my gun after a booker refused to pay more than an agreed-upon rate. Amina didn't return requests for comment. The fact that events nevertheless continue to occur at Ghost Ship, said Baronbaum, reveals the music community's compromises at a time when warehouse residences and unofficial venues are vulnerable to displacement. These events are a necessity and a right, Baronbaum said. But when you have these closures and this stagnation, people are forced into spaces that aren't proper. And when they lack healthy ways to express themselves, it can be destructive. In 2007, Baron Baum co-founded storied underground venue Bay Area 51. It was in the expanded garage of a two-story San Francisco structure once used as a hippie bus depot. A professional electrician, she toiled and fretted over visitor safety. The eccentric, permissive landlord lived on a sinking houseboat in Marin, Baronbaum said, but he nevertheless ousted residents earlier this year to better tempt buyers. By then, Bay Area 51 seemed starkly anachronistic against what ongoing residents considered technocrats' antiseptic vision for San Francisco. And that narrative has migrated to Oakland, where Uber's future headquarters sits downtown, wrapped in tattered white plastic like a spurned gift. According to a recent report by the local organization Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, more than 50,000 formal eviction notices were posted between 2008 and 2015, a figure that only begins to reveal the scope of displacement in Oakland. With more than 2,000 eviction notices a year, it makes sense that people are living in these precarious scenarios, said Aaron McElroy, co-founder of the Mapping Project. 
And a crackdown isn't going to keep people out of unsafe spaces. It's going to accelerate it. The priority of the city should be securing affordable housing for residents and preventing evictions. City officials often decry the housing crisis, but the recent mapping project report includes a troubling finding. Oakland's leading mega evictor, William Rossetti, whose associated companies are responsible for over 4,000 evictions in the period studied, is a member of Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff's hand-picked housing cabinet. When Schaff was asked about it, she said that she wanted a diverse group, including landlords and tenants' rights people. But the fact that the landlord she chose is behind 4,000 evictions is significant, McElroy said. People with that much property here have always had the power. The other option for a lot of us who live in warehouses here is living in the streets, said David Montoya, a former resident of LiveWork venue Lobot Gallery, which was evicted after 13 years this summer. Montoya, who now lives in another warehouse, performed at Ghost Ship weeks before the fire. It was obvious to me and my friends that that place was dangerous, he added. Examples of expelled havens abound. Lobot's loss was a major one for the community. In recent years, the space reflected tenants' identities with an emphasis on queer artists as well as regularly accommodated benefit gigs. We weren't making money off the scene, Montoya said. We provided for people who'd fled abusive partners, trans people, brown people. Underground music venues and residences, Ghost Town Gallery and Sugar Mountain, adjacent units in a sprawling former West Oakland creamery, also folded the summer, and in 2014 respectively, following protracted landlord disputes. The latter recently reappeared on the rental market this year as an $8,500 a month three-bedroom with suggested yoga studio and wine cellar. Then, 1919 Market Street, a warehouse subdivided into dozens of distinct units by crafty families and artists alike, was deemed uninhabitable by the city this summer after it fell under the control of one of local housing activists' most scorned developers, the Negev. We were told it would take two months and we could move back in. And the sad part is that people believed it, said Beck Levy, who lived in Grandma's house, a unit in the Market Street building once known for riotous noise rock shows. This was families, burners, old rock and roll people, artists, and the tactics used against them were just predatory. As far as our supposed contracts at the city, it was incomprehensible. Oakland City Councilperson Noel Gallo, who represents the predominantly Latino Fruitvale District of East Oakland containing Ghost Ship, thundered the need for more inspectors and code enforcement when approached by reporters at the scene of the fire. But condemning more structures, New York City loft tenants volunteer Heather Troy countered only further marginalizes people already forced by need of culture or cash to the fringes of cities such as Oakland. New York City, Troy explained, has a program that partners tenants of illegally inhabited buildings with landlords to conform structures to regulatory standards while retaining their mixed-use designation for creative purposes. It's a complicated... Uh, and incrementally improved system, Troy said, but it provides needed improvements without eviction. I definitely encourage the community and its representatives to create a pathway to bring these buildings up to code without displacing their tenants, Troy said. How important is this culture to your city? Asked to surmise the value of this scene to Oakland, Levy invoked a favorite phrase from MLK, people need places to gather in beloved community. All right. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a bit.
Hello, and welcome back to the Weekly Review. This is Roman, and I'm joined here by a very special guest. We're very grateful to have him here. This is our Brother Damien from the Society of St. Francis. Thank you so much for being here, Brother Damien. Thank you, Roman. It's good to see you again. Good yeah, you as you. well. Yes. Uh, well, I thought today would be a good day to talk a bit, little bit about, I guess, grief and oh. emotions that one faces in terms of like the political climate and also what's been happening here in the Bay Area in particular over the last few years. Sure, sure. It's it's certainly a, a relevant topic, uh, today and uh and always i mean grief is a grief is a big part of life i think it's i'm glad to hear people in the in the current climate talking about uh the need for grieving um i think sometimes we we limit grief to uh well we're supposed to grieve when someone very close to us dies or you know we lose a family member or perhaps we lose a pet or we lose uh something that's that's really dramatic like that but i think we forget that there's an important place for grieving in our lives for all losses, and those get uh, bigger and broader than, than we often think of. And so <clears throat> we see, uh, I think more perhaps with social media now, the, this sense of community grieving, which I yes. think is very, very healthy, uh, that allowing ourselves to recognize the losses in things that may not have been directly in our family or directly in our uh, immediate circle of friends, but nonetheless uh, affect us and are, are important to look at. So I'm, I'm glad to hear people talking about it more. Oh, yes, yes. I'm actually going to switch out our microphones Please do. for a moment. Please do. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sorry about that. Surely that doesn't mean I'm not loud enough. I've never been told that. Oh, <laughs> oh there we go. Yes, that's much better. Okay, Let's, good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, as you were saying, yeah, it's very important to uh, not just for like the personal losses, but also as a community, what those losses are like. Right. Right. And, and, you know, loss is always a part of life. Uh, and, you know, gr- grief and, and loss and grieving are, are one of many um, of the filters that we can see life through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important never to choose just one filter to see life through. But at the same time, uh, when we, we recognize that there are different filters, like uh, what is, is this piece of my life about in terms of grief? What is this piece of my life about in terms of loss? Or alternately, we might say, what is this piece of my life about in terms of anxiety? Or what is it about in terms of hope? Or in terms of any of those other filters we might use as well. Um, but it's very helpful to see um, that... that uh, that, that grief is present in, in and as I said, in, in things that, that some people might say, well, that wasn't really a loss, or it wasn't really a loss to you. Mm-hmm. But certainly it does. Yes. Um, and again, communi- community grief is important that we grieve together. Um, if we don't, and if we don't recognize uh, our need to grief, to grieve, our need to um, uh, face our losses and deal with them creatively and helpfully, yeah. uh, then we get stuck in them, mm-hmm. uh, and and it is you know it's not. I think some people have the sense that talking too much about grief, which used to be very unfashionable, to mm-hmm. them, you know, grief was not something you talked about. You just you know you suck it up Ooh. and you move on. You Ooh. Know? yeah, it's a horrible idea. That sounds really unhealthy. It is, in fact, and it repressive. Is, but it's precisely what it is, um, and so it's it is important. And I you know I thought every time I um, every time I agree to or uh, I'm asked to to speak to a group or do anything uh, of that of that nature 
Um, I usually uh, find, because it tunes my mind to that particular topic, that, uh, that I end up walking into an illustration. Yes. And so I said, oh, well, let's come talk about grief. And I went, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah. Fortunately, the illustration was a, was a, a fairly small one, but it it's, it's illustrates well, I think, the idea of how um, grief and loss is not always defined the way that we, that we look at it. And it just happened this morning at our house. I was uh, responsible for making uh, lunch for the brothers today. Yes. And uh, foolishly, before joining the uh, our morning meeting, I forgot to turn the heat down on the soup that was for lunch. And I burned the daylights out of it, and it was completely unsalvageable. Okay. Okay? Now, so, a loss of a pot of soup is yeah. not a huge loss. Yeah. It's not something we would normally think you'd grieve about, right? Yeah. Unless, enough, though certainly there are plenty of people in the world for whom that would be a huge loss sure. and well worthy of grief. Uh, we're fortunate not to go hungry. Mm -hmm. um, but I found that all of a sudden I was really angry, really upset about having burned the soup. It yeah. was just a silly thing. Why was I so upset about it? And the truth of the matter is, or one at least one way to filter the truth of the matter, why that affected me so deeply, um, is that uh, one of the things that's tremendously important to me in life, and one of the things I've clung to perhaps more than is healthy, um, is a need for competency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. Yeah, I need to have things under control, to yes. be good at things. Yes. Um, and so whenever anything compromises that perfect competency, yeah. whenever you say, well, that was stupid, that was a really simple thing, how could I manage to just not do that and ruin everybody's lunch? Uh, and suddenly I was feeling horrible about it, and it wasn't because of a pot of soup. Yeah. It was because of an ongoing need to grieve that loss of that sense that I can never be perfectly competent and have it all together. Yes, um, yeah. And, and so those, those are the kind of things that we experience, I think, in the wake of, of community tragedies. Yes. That, uh, that may not affect us directly. You know, obviously, um, the, the, uh, the fire in Oakland, uh, affected a lot of people yeah. who were listening to this very directly. Yes. Uh, because they knew some of the artists, yeah. or they knew some of the folks that lived there, or they're connected by a couple of uh, a couple of links to mm -hmm. those people. But even if we're not, um, every time we see something like that on uh, on the news or uh, among people that we know, among people who are affected by it, um, if if we remain awake to life and we don't get uh, callous to the things that we see on the news, we find that things like that affect us more deeply than we think that they should. Yeah. And it's usually because it makes a connection to something in us, something that we know we lost. Yes. When that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, <sighs> we're supposed to be safe. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and when we, we say, you know, and, and I think so many of us, and particularly, let's be honest, those of us who've lived uh, on the right side of privilege in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. Um, those of us who haven't uh, had to uh, had to live in places that are unregulated mm -hmm. or unmonitored by the city or mm -hmm. whatever the case is, yeah. we assume that, well, of course it's got to be okay. Someone has to have looked at it. Um, and when reality challenges that and says, by the way, um, you're not as safe as you think you are, Yes. Um, that's a loss. It's a loss of that sense of safety and mm -hmm. it triggers grief in us. Mm -hmm. I think recognizing all those different kinds of grief allows us to not simply not simply to uh, uh, feel bad and so suddenly feel like everything in the world is a loss, 
but I think to see life more realistically. Yes. Uh, and not to not to feel the need to cling to things that aren't there. Yeah. And and if I may make the parallel, I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of places in our country right now with the tremendous backlash uh, against some of the progress we felt like we had made. Yes. Uh, in in racial equality, uh, in LGBT equality, uh, in in the various things that we felt we had made some, or at least I can only speak for my, I certainly felt like we had made some progress in those things. Yeah. And suddenly, um, beginning about eight years ago, mm -hmm. uh, with the election of an African American president, God help us all, how could that possibly have happened in the minds of some? Mm -hmm. um, there was this tremendous backlash. Yes. And I don't think it's unfair to say that that's related to grief. Oh, yeah. Because grief is not always just about losing something good. Yeah. Grief is about any sense of loss. Hmm. And there are certainly people who feel a sense of loss of what they knew and was comfortable for them. Yes. There, yeah. There is, a, you, you, and you hear this, a lot of this talk about, you know, well, Let's even go to political slogans. Make America great. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, to me too. yeah. I saw one on the way over here. I don't <gasps> see them in San Francisco. Oh no! But uh, oh. And it does. It sends a chill through me. Yeah. Uh, and it's what it is, and this is why I think that ability to grieve is so important. Is it's a clinging to something that doesn't exist. Hmm. Um, hmm. What, what exactly are we saying that we're trying to get back to? Yeah. Uh, They were terrible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there, there, are, there's this clinging to a past that isn't really real. Yeah. Uh, and for many people, people who, uh, and I, and I understand it at some level, because I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania, um, and I was probably in high school before I even met someone who was not white European. Wow. Ah, um, uh, not, not quite, but, but. Beyond maybe one or two individuals in my in my school, okay, um, it was just that kind of racially uniform community. I see. The the uh, other religion in my community was Roman Catholic, it's mm -hmm. Protestant and Roman Catholic. Or, mm -hmm. You know, that's all there was. Wow. Um, and there is some sense in which, when you grow up in that uniformity, yeah, and it's challenged. Yeah. You get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now the fact is that's a good uncomfortable. But some people can't recognize that because they can't recognize their need to, to grieve something legitimate, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, innocence, simplicity, co the comfort of being surrounded by things that are entirely like you. Or familiar. Or familiar, that's yeah. exactly right. But if we, if we can't process that loss, which is a loss legitimately, we won't get the gain that's on the other side of it, which is so much bigger in that there are other people who aren't like us who introduce such tremendous mm -hmm. richness into our life and such sure. tremendous insight into, oh, the world wasn't so narrow after all. Mm -hmm. But if we get stuck on trying to prevent a loss of something that we think is good, uh, we end up never getting what is better. Wow. So it's, I, I think it's, I think that this, this grief, as I said, I think it's really important that we're talking about grief. Yeah. Because it figures into so many of the issues that we're facing uh, across all of public life right now. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, really significant. So at the same time that we were um, 
many of us uh, were grieving on election night, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and rightly so, yeah. because I think we've lost some very important things about what we thought our country was at this stage. Um, at the same time, uh, there, there are, of course, others who were grieving uh, the, the possibilities of the election going the other way. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is, of course, that the way we frame our gains and losses um, as being positive or negative, of course, changes the way we move forward. But uh, I think it's important for those of us who do feel, um, and of course, in this part of the country, thankfully, um, and I, I tip my hand, obviously, I don't usually try to be overly political mm-hmm. as a speaking for, a ta- being taken as speaking for the church. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I'm not, I don't hesitate to say that I was one of the many who grieved on, on election night. Yes. It's one of the, it's just a terrible loss for us. Yes. Um, but at the same time, uh, for us, it is useful for us to look at it as a loss mm-hmm. uh, and to move forward. And we do that in all the tr- the predictable ways. You know, we we could talk about the grief process. I don't know if that's anything. That's yeah. Part of what you wanted to talk about. Oh sure, I'm all I'm all about the grief. I'm in a bereavement group right now. I'm like that's my current. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say addiction necessarily, but I feel like just going through. I've lost a number of friends over the years, uh-huh. and finally being able to. Uh, just start dealing with my own emotions about it, as, as especially about with being in a particular demographic where, as a trans person, like we face, there's a suicidal ideation a lot, and there's also folks who are murdered. So there is like this intense uh, feeling about how to exist in a world where we get a lot of messages telling us we shouldn't be here. Sure, sure. So, and that I mean that's an excellent point because it complicates the whole issue. We begin seeing that filters overlap because suddenly, uh, if, for example. Um, and uh, you know we've obviously see, obviously seen plenty of this in our news too, and I I don't I don't doubt that perhaps your life has been touched by it directly. Uh, when we see someone who is attacked or even killed for their identity, yeah, uh, particularly for their trans identity, um, we have to deal with that in terms of grief of the loss, yeah. But we, but also those in the trans community have a very legitimate reason to view that through the filter of fear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Next. Yeah. Um, and certainly that, that comes into grief in, in broad ways for, for all of us. You know, anytime someone dies, it's a reminder of our own mortality. Sure. So even whether, but, but when we add to that, uh, the fact that this was not a random event. Yeah. This was an event that was targeted against a person because of their identity. Yeah. Um, it, it creates uh, a, a, a much more complex net of emotions that we need to deal with. Yeah. To move forward. That's absolutely true. And one of the most critical things in dealing with grief, loss, fear, all of those things, uh, is relationship. It's network. It's yeah. Support system. Yeah. And we have willfully withheld that mm-hmm. uh, from large portions of our community. Yeah. Um, and let's be honest, uh, you know, even when we talk about a world that has improved in many ways, um, you know, I grew up, uh, and anyone who knows me, it's no secret, I, I, uh, I openly identify as a gay man, even though I live, happen to live in a particular religious life that, uh, that I choose not to have a relationship that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with my sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. It's just because that's right for me. Yeah. Um, but I grew up with uh, a world where that was absolutely not okay. Yeah. And where I had to hide that for a long time. Um, by the time I was in uh, my early adulthood, the world had changed a tremendous amount on that. And certainly, 
obviously uh, any of your listeners who are gay, bisexual, lesbian know that it's still got a long way to go. Yeah. But let's be honest and say that the LGBT community has sometimes quite literally asked to drop the T off the end. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And so even in yeah. a community that should know better, mm-hmm. uh, the transgender community is finding themselves struggling for where is that support going to be for me yeah. as, I, as I mourn this sense of loss. And there couldn't be anything worse. I think back to, and you know, some of the ones that were really formative for me because they were still when I was struggling with my own identity and trying to figure out who I was and whether that was okay. Yeah. Um, I think of uh, the uh, Brandon Tina. Yep. And, yeah. And I think of uh, you know on the on the the uh, sexual orientation side of the the Matthew Shepard. Yeah. Uh, and how incredibly difficult it was not only to grieve that loss and to say what a horror this is, but then to hear so many of my peers uh, and people all over the country and in the news saying, so what? Mm. That, okay, they're dead. Good riddance. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and this is where the danger is when we don't pay attention to that grief. Mm -hmm. We don't process that loss First of all, that loss of uh, when we when the loss affects us. Yeah. If we don't process it and understand its impact on us and f- really feel it and really feel the the anxiety that comes with it, the aloneness that comes with it, the need to be reintegrated into community that comes with it, it makes it that much easier for us to write it off when it happens to somebody else. Mm, that's a really great point. And, and I think, of course, for most of us. You know, this is this is human nature, um, and we see it every day. Yeah. The more different someone is from us, the easier it is for us to mm-hmm. treat their losses and their their life as if mm-hmm. it didn't matter. Mm. And so, uh, whereas most of the country, for a long time, when someone like Matthew Shepard was murdered, mm-hmm. could say, "Well, it's just one of them," mm-hmm. and the and the gay community rightly felt that as an additional loss. Yeah. But then some of us, unfortunately, were able to look at losses in the trans community and mm-hmm. make a long list of names yeah. and say, well, you know, uh, maybe that we don't need to be too worried about that. Mm-hmm. Or, as I'm sure you've heard the real conversation, it, let's not include them in our cause because it'll just muddy the water. Mm-hmm. It could hurt It us. might make us look bad. It could hurt us. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and so we're willing to throw other people into the grief wheel, yeah. under the grief wheel, um, because I think in part because we haven't really understood what it meant for us to grieve. Wow. Um, yeah. And if we're willing to wall that up and not feel it, it makes it that much easier to look the other way or to actively inflict it on others. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was struck... It wasn't that long ago. And again, to take in another issue from the news, we see a tremendous rise in Islamophobia. Yeah. And xenophobia generally. Yes, yes. This, this fear and, and dismissive attitude that we have towards uh, people who are immigrants, mm-hmm. our willingness to refer to people as illegal as if that were a noun. Uh, yeah. Someone. Yeah. Um, and, and thereby, we marginalize and... and uh, dismiss their value mm-hmm. and when we see losses in their community we can kind of look past it mm-hmm. um, and so when 
those horrifying images uh, keep rolling out of Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, 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 a tiny child washed up down on the beach. Uh, a child uh, of what four or five years old, covered in soot and and blood and his own blood, and just staring in shock into the camera. Mm-hmm. And these haunting images that should tear us metaphorically limb from limb inside. Mm-hmm. And we can say, well, that's them. Mm-hmm. Any ability to say that's them shows me that we've not understood what grief is. Mm-hmm. We've not understood what loss is. Um, and I, I, whatever I, I always hesitate when I quote someone because they all have baggage. And I know that this man has lots of baggage. But John Donne mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> famously talked about not sending to know for whom the bell tolls. Mm-hmm. He says uh, um, that that uh, when a clod is washed away by the sea, England is the less. Mm. Uh, every man's death diminishes me. And mm. Yes, he used gender-exclusive language, certainly. Um, but every person's death diminishes me because I am involved in humankind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Mm. I think if we really understand and enter into grief appropriately, we build our ability to do that with others uh, who we think are less like us. Mm-hmm. Um, in, my, in my own life, I can think back to the stage where <clears throat> um, I had, uh, at some level, started to come to terms with who I was, but trans issues were still very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And they were very difficult for me for the same reason that they're difficult for many people, is that I chose to understand them in my terms instead of the terms of the people who are actually experiencing yeah. that identity. Uh, and so uh, I, I, the, the revelation for me came at the point where I made that connection to my feelings, my loss, my sense of being put on the outside, deprived mm-hmm. of my, uh, my illusion of being normal or mm-hmm. being like everyone else or mm-hmm. whatever those particular losses were. And I looked at individuals in the trans community at that time and thought, well, I just, I, yeah, but I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. See, the problem with that phrase is the first, the first word. I. I. Yeah. This isn't about me. Right. Um, yeah. At, at some level, of course it is because it's about all of us. Mm-hmm. But when I say I just don't get it, the revelation that hit me is, and most of the world just doesn't get you. Mm. In fact, at some level, and when I was a therapist, um, <clears throat> most of my interest was in a field called existential therapy. They talk, Ooh. About, they talk a lot about meaning issues and facing yeah. key anxieties in life. Yeah. And, and certainly loss is a, is a big factor in that. Uh, but one of the things they, that they talk about as part of the human experience uh, is the horror that we have of being alone. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. horror that we have of being alone has to do with the fact that existentially we are ultimately alone. Yeah. This is why, when well, if we talk about dealing with grief, what what's the worst thing you can say to a person who's grieving? There's probably a lot of them, but one of the ones we hear all the time, people say, "I know just how you feel." Mm-hmm. It's dismissive. Of course you don't. Mm-hmm. You don't know just how anyone feels. Each one of us feels alone. Mm-hmm. Um, each one of us experiences our losses and our griefs in our own way. And yeah. no one else can. Yeah. Um, but the, the, that is also what makes us all together. Because we are all, ultimately, our, ourselves. 
Uh, and no one else can experience who we are for us. Yeah. But when we recognize that, it sounds like, well, if you say, you know, that this one of the ultimate truths is that we're all utterly alone and all utterly un- misunderstood or whatever you want to use those words, that just sounds horrible and hopeless. Yeah. But, it, but when you think it through to its conclusion, it is in fact wonderfully hopeful because that means that I don't have to look at you and say, well, I don't accept you because I don't understand. Mm-hmm how you feel or what you think or what your experience is or how you understand your identity or how you understand your attractions or how you understand those things become irrelevant Mm -hmm. because nobody understands me either Uh, and because we are all ultimately separate that also makes us all ultimately together Mm. because we're in exactly that same situation and I don't need to make your grief, your loss, your sense of XYZ makes sense to me in order to say I value that yeah as much as I value my own yes uh, because I am you are we both are and mm-hmm. we both have equal um, equal deserving to be mm-hmm. uh, and neither of us is valuable more than the other because we somehow fit numerically closer uh, to what other people feel like yeah when you when you think in terms of that uh, that existential concept mm-hmm. of our individuality in, in that sense, uh, it takes away the majority. Mm-hmm. There no longer is a majority um, because each of us uh, is in that same place. And so those who want to claim, um, well, I'm like the rest, and therefore I should have this treatment or I should have that treatment, or mm-hmm. those who are outside shouldn't have this or mm-hmm. that treatment, are are denying a very central fact of our reality and our, our, our identity mm. and that is that we uh, we can either I think we can either choose to be all alone mm-hmm. or all together mm-hmm. I don't think any of the options in between make any sense mm. Mm. so mm. I have wandered it is my habit I, <laughs> yeah I digress oh no I, I like that there's lots to think about certainly and I think that's that's hard too especially in times like these when we, you know, the idea of like fascism and folks coming into power who are, there's this like not wanting to, like I definitely am on the side of like, ooh, even, even to take it down a notch, even with, for instance, maybe certain city officials and certain people in government, certain people in law enforcement who it appears by their actions don't have the interest of the people at hand. How do we all exist together if folks are actively hurting us? Like how do we reconcile that? And And it is... Well, again, there are several things that I would want to say about that. And, and that's one of them that you just touched on is a tremendous sense of something that we have legitimate reason to grieve for. Um, and when I say grieve for, I want to be clear from, from the outset that I don't mean we're supposed to say, oh, this is terrible, it's horrible, I feel so bad about it, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because grieving and accepting loss never means resigning the need to reconcile mm-hmm. or to put right what can be put right mm-hmm. or to resign that, oh, well, I lost this, so I shouldn't ask for anything back. Mm. Um, mm. So, so we need to be real clear uh, as, as people who are interested in being activists, mm-hmm. as people who are interested in making changes, that grieving does not necessarily mean accepting the state of affairs. Oh, yeah. It yeah. certainly doesn't. It, it, it certainly means at some level accepting what has been lost, mm-hmm. but also at the same level, refusing to accept the consequences of that without a fight. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I I've, uh, happen to be uh, at an age where both of my 
I can't get them back. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I have to lose uh, all of what came from uh, my relationships with them, mm -hmm. or that I have to give up on continuing to learn from, yes. challenge what, uh, uh, what, what they brought to me. And sometimes uh, I learn from my, from my history and my heritage and my, and my family uh, things that I want to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I learn from them things that I don't want to do. Yes, yes. That I want to do differently. Right. Uh, and I am certain uh, that everyone uh, who I influence in my life will do the same thing with me. Yeah. They'll have things to say, I wish I, I wish I could do that a little bit more like whoever the person is, if it mm -hmm. happens to be me. And they'll also have things that say, oh, boy, I never want to do that like Damien did. Mm -hmm. What a mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was a real pain. Um, one of the things that's beautiful in our community, uh, you know, of course... In a, in a religious community that takes life vows, people are there for life. And mm -hmm. that means that one of the things we deal with is losing our brothers when they die. Mm -hmm. um, and our, our community, I think, has such a healthy view of death. Mm -hmm. Because when, when someone goes, or when uh, we're talking about someone who has died, yeah. um, there's this old thing of never speak ill of the dead. Uh -huh. We don't do that. Cool. <laughs> we speak truth yeah. of the dead. Yeah. And we say, you know what? That guy was a kid old i can't believe do you remember when he used to yeah but boy we loved him mm -hmm. and boy we miss him mm -hmm. and that's healthy mm -hmm. that's a healthy part of our uh, loss as well and how we actually face it yes yeah if i can come back to your point i'm sorry i'm going to again um there's a genuine reason to grieve uh when we see for example those people who and our uh, vintage television shows and, and our way of thinking tell us ought to be the people that protect us mm. are suddenly people who are dangerous to us. Um, that is a legitimate thing to grieve. We need to grieve that because that's a loss. The loss of the sense that the government should be working for me. And depending on where you, uh, wh where you are in your life and what particular community you grew up in, what your experience of government and law Mm -hmm. Some people don't have to grieve that because they've never had that. Exactly. Place. Yeah. Um, but but many of us did in fact grow up in a in a uh, a way in a place and and let's not mince words. The fact that I'm a white male helped me to grow up in a way mm -hmm. that uh, I always saw law enforcement as helpful. Mm -hmm. And so last year uh, when uh, I had to get involved, and I say had to because I felt I I had no moral choice to yeah. get involved in the demonstrations surrounding the Frisco Five. Yes. Yes. Gongora, and, and of course Luis Gongora simply being the catalyst at that moment uh, to address the, the, the many uh, what I certainly feel are unjustified uses of legal oh, yeah. force by our yes. force F forced me to face in, in, uh, in, in much, perhaps in much more dramatic ways than I had the idea that no, this is really really broken mm -hmm. um, and th this is not uh, a question of well, in this one little incident, somebody made a little bit of a bad judgment error, error and, and it's, it's so much bigger than that. Yeah. To face that is, in fact, a loss. To tie it back, then, to what we were just talking about, about people um, being able to, I don't know, kind of sublimate their own sense of loss, uh, their own experience of pain, and thereby separate it from other people's experiences of pain, is a major factor in, in enabling police brutality. Mm. Uh, and we have helped our police forces to do that by 
a, nothing less than a systematic changeover in our view of policing. Um, you know, I'm not going to claim, and I, just as I don't want to let anyone on the uh, on the other side claim that oh things were better when, um, but there was certainly a much different perspective, at least in many communities, on what policing was about many hmm. years ago. That policing was supposed to be about community service, at least on its surface. Now I'm never going to claim that it was ever perfect at that, and I'm, I can't even prove that it was ever particularly good at that. But we have consciously made the shift in recent decades uh, in the militarization of our police. And, and I remember when I first encountered this concept, I was actually working in allied law enforcement. I worked in corrections for a oh, wow. few years. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Counselor. Yeah, as okay. a counselor. Um, but nonetheless, was very much part of the system. And um, there, there was a tremendous resistance at, at some levels to things like, uh, we're going to make a uniform change. And we're going to switch from these classic duty pants with the piping down the side. Uh, and we're going to wear tactical pants now because it's more convenient. And then there would be a resistance to that from certain people in, in, uh, uh, in management and, and especially outside of And it seemed silly. And the people who were, why, I don't understand why this is a problem. And the, the answer was because it's too military. Mm -hmm. and at the time, I didn't hmm. see that really. Mm. Um, but what we've done... Here's the thing, when you take a group of people and you dress them like the military and you equip them like the military mm -hmm. and you train them like the military mm -hmm. and then you begin drawing the vast majority of their numbers from the military, mm -hmm. what you've done is you've told this group of people that they are the military. Mm. Okay? So if they are in fact the military, now what is their goal? Well, the goal of the military in almost any operation is to find the enemy and destroy them. Mm-hmm. So when we send a militarized police force Oof. to our communities, yeah. we have effectively said, those people out there on the streets are the enemy. Yeah. Go find them and neutralize them. Mm. And so when our police show up on scene yeah. and say, here's a guy with a knife, could be dangerous, not sure, what do we do? Neutralize him. Mm. And so we see 15 seconds from arrival on scene yeah. to gunning down Yeah. At the time that he was executed. Yeah. Okay. Because if you have identified an enemy combatant in combat, you don't wait to find out what that enemy combatant is going to do. Mm -hmm. Now we can have a whole other discussion about warfare on that stuff because that's a whole different thing too. But let us clearly state that that is not what we want going on in our streets. Right. We clearly do not want police who are, are understanding themselves as an occupying force. Yes. Who are here to find and eliminate the enemy. Yeah. And so when we communicate that to our police force, when we train and, and gear things up in that direction, what we are doing is effectively giving the individuals, because systems don't make decisions, individuals make decisions, hmm. but we are giving those individuals a way to make those decisions uh, without considering the loss that they're causing, hmm. the pain that they're causing the fact that the people that they are dealing with are exactly the same as them. Right. Um, and so we've placed that step in between of these people that you're showing up at their house because there's been, uh, well, 
could be anything. It could be a domestic dispute. It could be somebody called because of noise. It if that, or anything. being profiled. Or, yes, or you haven't shown up at their house. You stopped on the street because yeah. they looked suspicious. Or at your, I saw a video the other day of a man who's at his mother's home. Yes. He was on the porch sure. and the cops came. Sure. I, yeah. yeah. And, and it's certainly not the first of those that's, that's turned up. Either. Yeah. Police stopping to question someone who's African-American yeah. because they looked suspicious. Right. In what way did they look suspicious? They looked suspicious by being African-American. Yeah. You know, listen. Let's be let's be thorough with the uh, the military um, uh, the the, uh, the military the, the militarization um, problem. Uh, how do you identify the enemy by how they look? Right. Let's you know. You, yeah, it's profiling. You don't enter into a conversation with the enemy in combat to find out if he doesn't really agree with the American way of thinking mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. Yeah. That's not how it's done. Uh, you identify the enemy by how they look. Yeah. They're wearing the uniform. Uh, and so that's, again, another message that we have sent to our police force by militarizing is you know who the enemy is because you know what they look like. Mm. That becomes identified by the way people dress. Um, uh, and so if people, uh, just to take one example, if people look disheveled and dirty and poor, uh, okay, we've identified who they are. Mm. They're the poor, they're the homeless, they're part of the enemy. Mm. Okay? <laughs> or if the person is wearing... Mm. Styles that are typical of uh, a, a particular subculture, uh, you know, of, of hip-hop or of, of uh, you know, whatever it happens to be that happens to be a, a group that the establishment, so to speak, has, has defined as part of the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we've seen what we see, and that's good enough. We know that they're wearing the uniform, mm. and sometimes the uniform is the color of their skin yeah. or the, or the, uh, the particular racial features that they may have. Uh, and we say, well, that's now we've identified the enemy. We don't need for them to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a colossally dangerous place that we put ourselves in. Um, and it's not a first time. But here's the thing. And this is what's so frightening about where we are politically as a nation right now. We are now willingly walking down a path that we have opposed in history before. Mm -hmm. We watched as, and I don't, I've seen for, for years and years and years people being compared to historical figures. Yes, yeah. And I don't like it because it's, you know, well, okay, as soon as you compare them to that person, you're saying they're the devil and don't, don't pay attention to their anything they say because obviously they shouldn't be trusted. And it's a form of ad hominem argument. You know, it's make, make this person look bad and therefore we don't have to listen to them. But I don't think they're exaggerated this time. Mm -hmm. Um, when we are literally talking about building walls mm -hmm. and registering people for their religion, when we are literally uh, seeing uh, a culture where um, you can stop someone on the street for uh, potentially uh, making some illegal money by selling cigarettes that may not have been charged proper taxes, effectively execute him on the street in blatant disregard of the policies of your department. Mm -hmm and walk away because everybody says, well, he shouldn't have resisted, it's fine. We've done something that is not that far off from the totalitarian governments of the past mm -hmm. that we have said, oh, that's horrible, never again. Yeah. Yeah, and I would jump in and I would even argue with just even going back to the history of the police force, and yes, that has been militarized in recent decades, but then also looking back to the the beginnings of it oh, with... Yes. with oh, uh, yes. Going after the idea of like them to go after folks who are freed. Sure, and sure, yeah, and that's you know that's uh, I think the, 
difficulty we have in some of those arguments, or not, not the difficulty with the arguments, but the difficulty we have in having that discussion, I have this strange situation of having uh, a foot in two worlds in some ways because I come from a tremendously conservative area. Uh, I still have uh, you know, so many contacts with people that I very much care about and people who are good people who think absolutely opposite of me on so many of these mm -hmm. things. Um, but uh, the, the, so I hear all of the arguments coming back at things like that is my point. Um, and, and I think what people are inclined to do, and I, there's a reason I bring it up is because it's an important point that you make about the origins there, that people are willing to say, yes, but that's not all it is. Well, there were other things. And so we don't have to pay attention to that. Mm. Complex situations are complex because we need to pay attention, attention to all of them. Yeah. You, know, you don't get to simplify into, well, all police forces weren't originally catching slaves. Well, I don't care if all of them were. It is disingenuous to not acknowledge yes. that that's part of the roots of our police force. Yes. And our, police, uh, our policing as it is today in this country. Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and we need to be honest about those kind of things. Well, let's tie back to the grief because... If we need to be honest, we need to, or if we need to grieve, we need to be honest about what we're grieving for. And one of the things we're grieving for is not simply what has changed, but we're grieving for a long What's past. the same, yeah. yeah. We're grieving for a long past. Um, when we talk about treatment of minorities and poor in, in our city today, we're not talking about something new. Mm -hmm. We're talking about, um, and this is also one of the reasons why grieving is so difficult for so many communities and so many people is because it's not... Life was going wonderfully, and then mm -hmm. one lost it. Yeah, um, it, it is for many in recent years, uh, and and for me as an outsider, admittedly to many of these issues, um, it is a, a, a grieving a loss that we thought that's that we were gaining, mm -hmm. and now we're grieving the loss of that illusion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, de I definitely feel that. And also with the, with the backlash and also just learning about the, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s and I was a child during then. So I wasn't really aware of the brainwashing that was happening or the, just in terms of getting, pushing folks out of mental hospitals onto the streets. So like the rise in homelessness, just the rise in the military spending, uh, like the homophobia, uh, with the HIV and AIDS crisis, uh, racism with like the crack epidemic and how that affected families, mass incarceration and, and, and you're, you're right, I mean, we can go back decades through all of those things, and, and you know, one of the, the things that shocked me um, in, during the AIDS crisis, and uh, mind you, by the time that the AIDS crisis began, I was nowhere near being ready to accept who I was. But I was shocked to watch the community that, that I grew up in, the community that I loved and cared about, that I, that I loved and cared about me, although they didn't know all of the... You know, they might have changed their mind, or at least my experience of it might have changed. Mm -hmm. um, to to watch these sincere and I thought loving and good people say, "Well, they're just gays. Mm. They're just if they didn't do what they do, then this would <sighs> yeah. what I think was one of the worst losses in some ways for me, and one of the most insulting things was that they began to care." with Ryan White. Mm -hmm. and, and God bless the, the memory and, and the soul of Ryan White mm -hmm. um, and his family. Um, but that it took oh, yeah. someone who was, the, who couldn't be, even be painted with the brush. We couldn't assume mm -hmm. that, well, he must have deserved it. Yeah. Um, 
that was what caused us to care. And unfortunately, again, if we, if we wall ourselves off and allow ourselves to not really experience the loss of others, then we can do that because Ryan White was similar enough mm -hmm. to say, all right, now we can care. Yeah. Um, we should have cared a long time before that. Right. Because all those other people were us too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so all of those, uh, all of those things happening, uh, through, well, and, and, you know, we see it ongoing, the way that we, you, you mentioned brainwashing and I, uh, I, you know, we, we, we use that term and, and people will resist that term because, you know, they think of some clever laboratory procedure. But the fact of the matter is that um, the first time I ever traveled outside of this country, yeah. other than, you know, visiting Canada with family and that sure. sort of thing, but the first time I ever traveled outside of this culture, yeah. uh, I was in Egypt and Palestine. Mm. And I went to Palestine as in my very early 20s mm -hmm. as a typical American, college educated by that point, but still, you know, I, I, Palestinians are terrorists, aren't they? Uh, that's what our media had painted for us. Mm. All we had seen was videos of Palestinians throwing rocks through windows and attacking Israeli, uh, uh, Israeli soldiers and so on and so on. Then we got there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We saw what was really happening on the ground. Now, back mm -hmm. then, mind you, back then we didn't have underground radio mm -hmm. available on the internet. Yeah. We didn't have... YouTube videos popping up or people's cell phone videos popping up yes. to show the realities yes. that are happening in Palestine, yeah. in Syria, yes. in uh, Sudan, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We didn't have all of those things popping up, and so it was very easy uh, to, to be sold on this sense that, well, they're dying because they're the bad guys. Mm. Um, and this is probably where we have a real advantage now mm -hmm. um, and why we, we should be talking about, not only talking about the issues, but talking about grieving the, the losses. And one of the losses is the illusion that we had it right. Ooh, yeah. The illusion yeah. That, we, that we knew, mm. um, you know, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't because there, ultimately there's no such thing. Yeah. Ultimately, um, we... And, and one of the helpful things for me, because we, we talk about, we're talking about a lot of very divisive issues. Mm -hmm. One of the helpful things for me um, well, let me take a slight, slight tangent. We, we would probably agree, in fact, I'm sure we agree, that, uh, that war doesn't create peace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and ultimately even in the more metaphorical sense, defeating an enemy, mm -hmm. whether we do it with physical force or laws or, you know, social pressures or whatever we use, defeating an enemy does not make peace. Mm -hmm. it, it makes conquest. It makes temporary quiet. The only way to make peace is to reconcile. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about reconciling, yeah. Ed, you're going to interrupt. Oh, I have a question. I'm, I'm sorry, I have a question, though. Oh, yeah, How does one reconcile with fascists? That's, okay, thank you. You're actually going where I was going. Yeah. And here's the problem that we run into. The problem that we run into is that um, we are addicted to fast solutions. Yes, yes, yep. And this is why San Francisco is approaching the homeless population <sighs> by saying it's, uh, and this is just, this is stunning to me that someone can say in, in the same train of thought, 
it's not compassionate to allow people to live like this mm. in cities. Mm. So let's out. Yeah. Outlaw. Oh yeah. It, it, is, it is a shocking uh, way of, of saying. Well, there is a, a we need a quick solution. So yes. It. it would be equivalent to saying it's not compassionate to allow people to suffer and die with cancer. Mm. Therefore, let's make cancer illegal. Mm. Well, that's not what we did with cancer. We've spent decades and decades and decades finding better treatments, finding ways first to make people more comfortable when they were uh, sick with cancer, mm -hmm. but then finding treatments and doing research into things that were entirely unrelated and eventually finding little pieces to put together, and little by little we've gotten there. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first, the first thing for me, the first part of reconciliation is nonviolence. Yes. It's simply saying, I will not join in. Yes. Uh, you can choose to be violent towards me. I will never choose to be violent back. Now, not everyone agrees with that. Yeah. Uh, and I don't. I don't certainly don't judge anyone who, who, who takes it a different route. I know there there is, uh, and it's easy for me to say. Yeah. I absolutely recognize that um, because I am not part of. Uh, uh, in most ways, I'm not part of an oppressed community. Yeah. Um, so it's very easy for me to say that, but. Um, we, we first choose not to be part of the problem, mm. not to feed it. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, that's, you know, reconcile, as you, as you say, re how do you reconcile with a fascist? Um, you don't, because part of the reconciliation would have to mean that that person is no longer a fascist. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, but it may also mean that I have to let go of some things. I don't know what they are, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of anything in particular, but it may be... Um, that I find in that process, and hopefully I find in that process, that there are ways that I need to be uh, educated and to grow and to do things differently. Um, but but yes, uh, do, can you reconcile with a fascist? Yes, when they're not a fascist anymore. Yeah. So I guess then, yes. yeah. So it, it, it is. It is not. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's an easy process to this. Mm -hmm. um, but we do. Um, if you watch the progress that we have made, mm -hmm. you know, uh, over the years. It has come from the long process of changing what is expected and what is acceptable and what is not. Um, we, I don't know if you've seen, every once in a while, um, uh, some memes will go around that are uh, highlighting ads from the 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. of how women were used in advertising. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and things that they would say about, you know, how to keep your wife in line or whatever, whatever. Yeah. And we look at them in horror and we say, oh my gosh, you would never possibly. Now, have we solved misogyny? Fuck no. Of course not. Yeah. But have we gotten to a point where what was utterly acceptable then is utterly unacceptable now? I think in most cases we have. Now, are there still people who think that way? Yes, there are. Mm -hmm. uh, they are on the fringe now. Not that misogynists are on the fringe, but that, that particular brand of it. Yeah. And so unfortunately, the answer is not that, that we can reconcile anything instantly, mm -hmm. uh, but it is that that's the direction we, we move. Um, and, and I'm far afield from grief now. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and that's, that's the difficult part of it, is you know, I cannot change that person from who they are. Yeah. Yeah. People's minds are changed by relationships, not by arguments. Mm -hmm. Almost always. 
Yes. Uh, and, and it's not a very satisfying quick fix, um, but in some individual ways, it's one of the, the things that we can do is simply to, um, to live by the values that we want to see. Yeah. Well, that seems like a, a lovely place to end. We're just about out of time. Uh, Brother Damien, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for, for asking me. I appreciate it. Uh, look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up the show now. It's a uh, sure thing. It's just about 2 o'clock, so we'll be ending on a, on a song here. Um, coming up next will be Women's Magazine at 2 p.m. Uh, keep on listening. We're at Mutiny Radio here, and we'll be ending on a, another song by the band uh, Them Are Us Too. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and we'll be back next Friday. <laughs>